Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. For an application like Gemini, where the alternative might be gas or it might be scarce pumped hydro or, you know, it ain't wind in, in that part of, the, of Nevada, that's a really sensible, efficient, robust answer today. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in, and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. If you are new here, thank you for giving me a chance to earn your attention by lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got, and that is your time. Today's entrepreneur, David Skaysbrook, has nearly three decades of experience in energy and renewables infrastructure, and he has led, along with his partner, Rory Quinlan, the development of what might be one of the most lauded and recognizable renewable energy funds and development platforms in the industry, Quinbrook Infrastructure Partners. As the co-founder and managing partner, David is responsible for the overall management of the firm, leading strategy, and also chairing the investment committee. Now, before founding Quinbrook, he led the team that successfully raised and deployed more than a billion US dollars in institutional equity capital and clean energy projects across the UK, the United States, and Australia for another company you may be familiar with called Capital Dynamics. And he and Rory founded one of the UK's most diversified non-utility renewable energy companies, Novera, uh, way back in 1998. In today's wide-ranging conversation, we'll cover how David got into the power industry, his decisions to foray into entrepreneurship out of the tried-and-true legal background that brought him there, and how he ultimately determined the business model that would be the underpinning of what we now know as Quinbrook. I hope that you enjoy these kinds of discussions. And if you do, then you should subscribe to Suncast as that'll ensure that you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this. Gems of stories that really dig into what it's like to be a founder on the front lines of the clean energy transition. And we've got more than 485 additional founder stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com. So please go take a look at that. And one more really special thanks to David and his team for really being responsive and open and for his sharing deeply from the insights and advice, not only that he has been given, but that he gives to others. This interview took quite some time to schedule, and I could have recorded for three days. Trust me, it's worth every second. All right, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, I mentioned Quinbrook Infrastructure Partners in the intro and how it is a, a fund. We're going to explore a lot about what that means and how ultimately David and Rory decided upon that business model. But as we get ready to jump in here, I think it's worth mentioning that if you haven't heard of Quinbrook, they were awarded Investment Fund of the Year by ESG Investing Awards 2021. And that award was 90 finalists in 17 investment fund categories. One of the guys who, as I mentioned, helped sort of architect the strategy of what would become Quinbrook Infrastructure Partners is this guy, David Skaysbrook. David, I'm so excited to finally have a chance to bring you on Suncast. Thank you for joining me. 
Great, Nico. It's great to be here and uh, I'm so glad we were finally able to put it together. Likewise, mate. I've been a huge admirer of the work that you all have done. And uh, in the conversations that we've had to lead up to this, I've just really become an admirer of the work that you've done to really build a remarkable career. And I look forward to giving folks a glimpse into it. I hope that we can, in some ways, recreate the magic of of past discussions and that even despite your long uh, journey over to London today, that we'll have some, uh, we'll have some, some fuel for and fodder for the conversation here. But I want to go back, uh, David, to, you know, the, the crucible, the early days, the formation of who David Skaysbrook would become. What was it like in your household as a child? Maybe what were, what were conversations like around the dinner table for you? Well, you know, I was, uh, I was effectively brought up as an only child, which a lot of people attribute that fact and, and the cherishing love of, of a mother, probably overprotective mother who made me feel invincible. Um, it's, it's what a lot of people put <laughs> my confidence down to. They say I have a, definitely an overtuned level of confidence uh, and, you know, that's something that, you know, I probably attribute to to my mother and, and my upbringing early on uh, is really just feeling as though, you know, we could take on the world. That's really the the best explanation I've probably got of that. You were brought up, David, in Australia. Is that right? Whereabouts in Australia? I was brought up in Sydney originally. So I was born in Sydney and uh, grew up and raised there and educated there, but also spent some time as a child. We moved around quite a bit. Uh, so spent some time in Melbourne as well. Uh, but all the way through my sort of tertiary education was then uh, back in Sydney. You know what's interesting, and you'll ter- certainly appreciate this, having spent some time with our ethnocentric, cultural, uh, American uh, stereotype. For most Americans, Sydney and Melbourne may as well be Brooklyn and New York. <laughs> what highlights or differences might you enunciate as an Australian that an, an American would want to know uh, before sort of embarrassing themselves in a conversation about the geography of, of Australia and the cultural differences? Well, I think you know, there's always, like many cities that approximate to each other, friendly rivalry between... Sydney and Melbourne, I, I suppose Melbourne is always regarded both as the cultural epicenter of Australia and and certainly in arts is probably fair and also sporting capital, although that's challenged by every other capital city in Australia. I think everyone knows Sydney probably is a more uh, popular, recognised city in the world. Uh, it tends to be the more international gateway to Australia and a lot more I suppose the finance community and expat community uh, is in Sydney. Um, certainly, that's it's. I mean, that's evolved a lot over the years. But you know, growing up there, my childhood was really spent growing up in the sporting rivalries. That really defined my childhood. Is is really those sporting rivalries? Oh wow! What what were the sports that uh, that most fascinated you? Oh, cricket was definitely uh, my sport for sure, all the way through. Yeah. Um, I played a lot, a lot of sports as a kid, a lot of team sports. And, you know, I, I have grown up believing that playing team sport is, is an important formative influence on, on youth. And I've certainly ensured that my children were all engaged, you know, in team sport from an, from an early age. How did entrepreneurship or even just the idea of starting things on your own. How did that first get injected into your DNA? How do you think about that? Well, I never really, certainly when I was a lawyer, I was a practicing lawyer for many years, never considered myself really 
entrepreneurial. So it wasn't a part of really the way you were brought up. Well, I, I never considered it, but then people reminded me of things that I had done that they regarded as entrepreneurial, but I never really saw that in myself. Um, I mean, one of those things which led me to the energy industry was coming back from uh, a secondment with Skadden Arps law firm, a large US law firm, as you probably uh, know. I spent some time there as a foreign intern. Two things relevant to that. One, I, was, I sort of insisted on going to California rather than New York because I felt that it'd be a little bit more fun. But I didn't realize that I was the first to ever be granted permission to be outside of New York in the Skadden Arps foreign intern program. So, so I managed to get myself a convertible and an apartment on the beach and had a good couple of years. That was a lot of fun. I really, really enjoyed it. And then we went back to Australia to practice again you know, started a business for the law firm that I went back to join at that time called Blake Dawson Waldron, which has gone on to be merged into a much larger international law firm these days. But uh, we started an American client services team. And the idea there was to really focus on US companies doing business in Australia and also blend that with major projects. And so that led me really to the to the first opportunity that got me into sort of private power. I'll circle back around to the the first step into or foray into private power. But first, I'd like to ask, was there anything in particular as a young man or, or a child even that you always dreamed you'd become in terms of uh, career that that you ended up not pursuing? Well, it's funny, you know, those that are close to me in my family, you know, remind me that my mum always wanted me to be a lawyer. And the way I interpreted that when I was young was to, I said I would, when I was growing up or when I grew up, I was going to solicit people <laughs> because in Australia lawyers are called solicitors, oh, yeah. which is not, not, not such a kind term in the United States. Yeah. But, but so I was going to solicit people, which I ended up doing as a fund manager, but not, not really. I don't think that's what my mum had in mind. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> And so you followed the, you, you did end up following the path that, uh, that your mom had in mind and sort of this, I'll, I'll say sort of this, uh, this tried and true path into being a lawyer. You got a chance to go to the United States. One of the interesting milestones of working in the United States that ended up being fundamental in your professional growth and, and part of the cornerstone when you got back to Australia was working on the NRG account while at Skadden. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So so I was back in Australia and, you know, through the Skadden Alumni Network, got a call from their managing partner in Sydney that there was a US power company coming to look at a transaction opportunity in Australia. Mm-hmm. And that company was NRG Energy, which at the time was a fledgling business that had only just been set up as a non-regulated subsidiary of Northern States Power. And I think they had 10 megawatts when they first came to Australia. This is in like 80s, 90s? No, this would have been 1992. And really at that stage, there'd only ever been really one private power transaction in Australia. It was all very new, very novel. And that was the Loyang B project that was done in Victoria, which was a, a new power station. The Victorian government was basically broke and they needed to get this power station built. So they invited private capital and, and um, Mission Energy or Edison Mission Energy was ultimately the companies from America that, that came in and built Loyang B. And that really kicked off sort of private sector investment in up until then had been completely 
a public infrastructure. Can you tell me about that early deal? Uh, I mean, that for me, it's, it's seminal. It's the, it was their first foray into not just the power industry, but it ended up being the largest power plant privatization that had ever been done at the time. And at least in Australia, is that right? Can you talk a bit about that deal and Indeed. some of the, some of the folks that you met through that process that ended mm. up having a huge impact on not just your, your career, but your life? Definitely. Well, you know, first and foremost is a man by the name of Bob McClenahan and we became lifelong friends and was one of the best men at my wedding. <laughs> um, but he came out, he was the VP of international business development for NRG and he came out to Australia looking for advisors uh, to help NRG put forward a bid to become selected by Rio Tinto as their partner to acquire the Gladstone Power Station from the Queensland government. So it was the faith that Bob placed in me to become his advisor and the advisor to NRG to assist them to win that selection as a partner for Rio Tinto. That really kicked it all off. And so that friendship and and professional uh, relationship started in 1992 and endures to this day. What happened at the end, obviously, we won the, the selection for that mandate and, and uh, during that period I learned what I needed to learn at least initially about private power. It was an incredibly complex transaction. It was novel. There were people from all over the world involved in it because it, it was such a novel thing. We had lawyers from London. We had lawyers from the United States and it was just very complex. And the team inside uh, Camalco and Rio Tinto or CRA which it was known as the time, were like genuinely first rate in complex contractual structuring and negotiations and project financing. And, and I really got exposed to, I guess in hindsight, would have been one of the crack commercial and financial teams in Australian corporate existence at that time. I didn't necessarily know that at the time, but the learnings that we took away from that really set me up to understand, you know, private power and contract structuring and joint ventures and partnerships and, you know, as a testament to how well that project was put together, you know, 30 years later, it still exists with the same original partners. And I don't know of too many joint ventures, to be honest, that go that distance. I'm really curious because it was NRG, for example, went from you know, virtually unknown to owning uh, nearly two terawatts, 1700 megawatts of power overnight in Australia. What do you think about that team and this, and the structure led to NRG winning that deal? And I'm wondering, because it was such an early deal in your career and in history, are there things that you learned there that became muscle memory that you've sort of been able to put back into sausage, <laughs> sausage machine? Well, I think the, one of the key takeaways from that was really an underdog mentality because we, we, you know, we had, you know, these really nice Midwesterners coming out from the United States, Minneapolis to Australia. And some of them was their first international trip they'd ever taken. And, you know, it was such a, a an unfamiliar experience for them. So part of my job was really coaching them about cultural affinity and how to behave and how to talk to their counterparts. And it went sort of beyond me being a sort of commercial legal advisor to really preparing them to be liked and admired as a as a partner and we were going up against at the time I think PowerGen and Southern Company which 
at the time were much more formidable and established than NRG was a startup at that stage. And so we had to really establish all of their materials. We had to write all of their sales materials. We had to write their credentials document. We really had to do it all from scratch and it took a long time. I think it was a six-month process. The selection, just the selection process took took six months. So, I mean, it went beyond just trying to learn about the transaction. It was really about positioning NRG against some pretty formidable opposition. And that deal, or at least the the formation of that deal, ultimately led to your decision to to move away from being an attorney and, and go into being general counsel. Can you talk about spending time, sort of that decision to to move into private? Yeah, well, there are probably two things. And, you know, my old partners won't like me for saying this, but uh, one of the things I was struggling with in the law at the time was I couldn't really find a role model that had a lifestyle I wanted to emulate. And, you know, that was a, a it is a renting your time business. I mean, you know, I think it made me realize that there was a disconnect between my own ambitions and and the life that I wanted for myself and really what, even though I'd reached the pinnacle of my profession, it felt like at a young age I'd kind of reached the end of the road already, you know, and it sort of seemed that was a bit discombobulating to me at the time. Whereas on the other hand, I could either be, you know, stay in as as a lawyer as one of the first lawyers who had ever done a private power transaction, but within a few years, I'd be just one of many. And so I didn't feel as though it would be an enduring, you know, competitive advantage, if you like. And that and, and turned out to be true. Alternately, I could leave the law and and sort of do more of the transacting like we did with, with Gladstone, albeit, you know, in different places and whatnot, but still within Asia Pacific. And, and the opportunity to sort of take up a managerial leadership position and do more of private power investing and, and transacting, that was more appealing to me. And so the combination of those two things uh, really made it a very easy decision at the end of the day for me. I can only imagine that we could we could probably do an entire episode just on the time that you spent at NRG, but I'm I'm really curious to dig into one particular area or deal that I know made an impact on you personally. How did a landfill gas company back in Australia teach you what it was really like to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think that if I look in hindsight, that probably is one of the most seminal events, if you like. We had been designing the business plan for NRG for Asia Pacific and of course it was intensely competitive and we were going up against, you know, very large competitors with big balance sheets and it, it, was, it was a pretty risky business, to be honest, in investing capital out of non-regulated subsidiaries invariably in competitive auctions for assets. And, you know, I felt as though it was really the risk and the return were a little bit out of balance, but nevertheless, that's the business that that all of these IPPs were in at the time. Um, there were a limited number of assets and there was a lot of competition for them. So I I just came across a company that was in boutique power, really, I guess you'd call it. They they were taking fugitive methane from landfills and and making power, so only five megawatts at a time, 10 megawatts at a time. But it was listed on the Australian Stock Exchange and though they were very successful. I think they were growing at 100% per annum, but they always needed money. And they were making, 
like 30% IRRs on 25-year contracts. And I thought, gee whiz, that's, you know, if I could only replicate that, you know, 100 times larger, that would be the business that I'd want to be in and and invest safely in. And so I approached the founders and, you know, cut a long story short, we ended up investing in about 35% of that company, which an which is a very unusual deal for NRG to do. It's in a take a minority position in an in a listed public company in Australia that was doing boutique landfill gas. But you know the return story was pretty compelling, and I managed to persuade NRG that that it was a good idea. And through that process, uh, that same Bob McClanahan and I went on the board of directors of that company. And we learned about their business, but I guess more importantly, I, I met the two founders of that company and my meeting them and really interrogating them in a friendly way about how it was that they came to start this company that they were both major shareholders of that was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. How did they get the idea? How did they start it up? And and that I've... I, felt that I was completely clueless, to be honest, even though I had I had done a lot of transacting myself in various capacities, I didn't feel as I had knew the first thing about how to start a company. And and so one of the founders in particular, Walter Pahor was his name, was gracious enough to, you know, mentor me through those early stages of how to set up what became Navera Energy. And I set that up in in 1998. And went through all of those typical founder challenges and issues and being full of hope and ambition with not a lot of, you know, guidance or clue about how to do it. But his his mentorship through that early phase gave me both the inspiration and the courage to think that if these guys could start this company above a delicatessen in a little suburb of Melbourne, well, I can do this. I could probably do it too. So around the same time, the Australian government, in particular, Prime Minister John Howard, made a particularly strong or important announcement, I guess, in the history of what would become the rest of your career, safeguarding our nation. Can you tell me how that, along with kind of meeting these uh, seminal founders, uh, really kick-started sort of the next 20 years of your career? Yeah, indeed. So what they were doing, you know, that business called Energy Developments was it was a just a smart development business where they would find opportunities to, you know, either extract a waste gas and make electricity out of it and doing something that nobody else was doing. So they were in a sort of pretty much had the market to themselves and they were able to extract really strong returns, but they were very, very gifted at project development and how to turn an idea into an operating asset and and get it secured long-term with contracted cash flows, which was really, they were an IPP and they were just doing it at sort of small boutique scale. So at that stage, it wasn't renewable, even though it's a renewable fuel these days, the way it's been regulated. It wasn't called that. It was just boutique power. Then John Howard came out and and made the Safeguarding Our Nation announcement in 1997, where he said, we're going to have a renewable energy target. It was originally, and Australia is not a big power market, I can tell you. I think we're smaller than the whole of the ERCOP market in Texas, even today, but 1% renewable energy target. And I thought, well, you know, if I don't start up a company myself, energy developments is going to do the whole thing. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're going to have the whole market to themselves. And, and I remember going to Walter and saying, hey, look, you wouldn't mind if I started up a renewable energy company. I'm not going to do landfill gas. I'm going to do wind and some other things. So don't worry. We won't be sort of competitors. And, you know, he, he didn't mind at all, of course. And I thought, okay, this is my moment. So this 1% target would create the market into which I could build my own, you know, energy developments, if you like. And what then endured in the five years that it took to introduce the law that stemmed from that policy, right, and that was really, you talk about the abyss, that five years was a an absolute abyss of just political fighting and lobbying and it it was really an insight into energy, Australian energy politics that the fight from industry against that, even though it was a conservative government that was introduced the policy, the vociferous reaction of the aluminium of the aluminium minerals council of australia business council of australia to what was essentially like a negligible start but it was like a foot in the door issue and they said that this is we got to stop this this is this is not good we can't let this happen and they successfully delayed and pressured the government to slow roll the legislation that would then become ultimately become the Australian Renewable Energy Target or our RPS equivalent. But in that time, we'd raised some private capital to start up what became Nevera Energy. And when I say it was the abyss, it was the abyss because, you know, we developed projects, we were waiting for the legislation, banks are not lending until the law gets passed. We ended up as another silver lining moment, effectively hedging our bets and moving the business partly to the UK. I remember just hearing you talk about abyss. One of the things that strikes me from conversations that I've had with you is that you characterize the very notion of being an entrepreneur as to unflinchingly stare into the abyss, right? To know that that is, that's, that the way is forward. And just because it looks like an abyss doesn't mean you get to back out. (laughs) It's true. I mean, I think that's, to me and reading, you know, stories of other entrepreneurs and successful enterprises and even ones that obviously failed uh, is, you know, there are three occasions when we were weeks away from insolvency. And when I say unflinchingly staring into the abyss, as the leader and the founder, you know, you're the captain of the ship. And so how you behave and how you think and if you can show courage and perseverance, not only to yourself, but to those that are working with you, whose careers are on the line in those moments, you know, that's the the courage that you need to press on and to believe that you will endure, notwithstanding that you don't actually know how you're going to do it. And when you've only got weeks left on the clock, you know, that build, I'd like to think that builds resilience um, certainly when you come out the other side, it does. <laughs> and you find a way. And and I think, you know, entrepreneurship, we tend to focus only on those that have succeeded, but but it's a, it is a fairly common trait that those that do succeed in entrepreneurship are able to come through those moments and 
endure and they probably go on to do more th- more entrepreneurial activities and found more businesses as as I have done because I think that resilience that you build gives you the confidence that you can do it again and even if you face those same challenges which most startups do that you again will find a way through and that certainly has been the journey that that I've been on so up to now Rory Quinlan hasn't really entered into the picture what took you to, you mentioned you went to the UK. What took you to the UK? And give me a sense of the aughts, kind of 2003, 2009 timeframe that forms the foundation of Novera and everything since. Well, I, I first met Rory when he was working at a power retailer in Brisbane called Ergon Energy. And he was the business development manager at Ergon. And, and he was he was young and, uh, you know, full of energy. He was a, just an engaging personality and I was doing some advisory work for Ergon which put me in contact with Rory and and we very quickly sort of became friends even though there was quite a bit age difference and experience difference between us um, I'd actually wanted to start up a uh, within the advisory firm that I had at the time called Private Energy Partners uh, I wanted to start a co-generation development business uh, which at the time was a thing believe it or not and so I thought, well, actually, maybe Rory might be interested in heading that up and doing the project development work for us. And so that's what happened. So we ended up making him an offer. He left Ergon and he joined Private Energy Partners and started developing cogeneration plants on the east coast of Australia. And so we got to know each other and we became friends. And right, he is a, he is an gay. Anyone knows Rory knows he's a. Uh, he's probably he's probably funnier than I am, if I'm, I'll have to admit it. Um, but he is an engaging personality, and so he was always good company. And and uh, you know we did some fun projects together. When we decided that cogeneration opportunity wasn't really ultimately we're able to not able to crack that nut. At uh, around about that same time, we'd put the Navera concept together, and when became obvious to us that in order to survive for that business to be able to even have a chance of survival, we needed to migrate it to the UK where it did have a functioning market, where there was, you know, a renewable energy target that was being implemented. It wasn't actually in place, but we felt there was more opportunity for us. And and funnily enough, through some associations that I'd made in the UK, we found a distressed landfill gas opportunity. So I probably broke my accord with Walter Parhor by actually going into landfill gas, uh, which is something I felt we knew, but at least I didn't do it in Australia. And so that first investment, which was a distressed investment, was an insolvent business within an oil and gas company in the UK at the time. That became our first investment that would generate cash flow and would actually would be an operating asset within Navera that would give us something to build on. It would be the anchor asset, the platform asset. And and so Rory and I both started, you know, traveling over to the UK to transact on that on that deal, which we did. And that's what happened. So Navera went from being, you know, frustrated startup, you know, in a in a sort of relative pretty desperate predicament in Australia with a a government that was slow rolling everything to going over to the UK and finding an asset that would actually return 
something to our investors. And and so I moved my family to the UK. You know, I said, Rory, why don't you come over with me and let's see if we can make a fist of this. And so that's what we did. You seem to have a knack for not only identifying good deals, but talent as well. Rory being a great example. Any reflection on what it is that you're looking for in particular, what makes a good partner, operator, leader for your companies? Yeah, I think, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to realize each other's strengths and weaknesses. And I think from from a very early phase in our professional relationship, I could see the things that he was stronger at than I was. And he respected the talents that I had. And the combination of, of our two, you know, characters, but also our professional skills really complemented each other rather than conflicted. And so we didn't really have a battle of egos. It was really a complementary skill set and a shared vision to do something ourselves rather than sort of be employed by others. You know, he has got that same entrepreneurial spirit or that risk-taking. He's probably not, you know, he probably is the same risk-taker that I am eventually. I think he was I probably made him that way. <laughs> I think he was probably a bit more conservative than me at the beginning. But as we moved through and you know we succeeded together, he he really, you know, morphed into his own entrepreneur. Around the time Novera was really well say functioning well. We had what many have referred to as the global financial crisis 2008-2009. Mm. How did that impact your business and what sort of realizations came to you? that would help you sort of begin to expand beyond just developing power plants? Well, we, over about an eight year period and Navera was, you know, it ended up being more than a 10 year mission for both of us. But over that time period, there wasn't really a lot of private capital options. I mean, there was a venture capital market, which we didn't fit. And the only way to really raise equity for a capital intensive business model was to list your company on the stock exchange. And so we had done that, but being a small cap on any market is no fun. And it was always difficult to raise money each time we needed money for, for new projects. And we, we, even back then we were very prolific in developing and, and we created what is essentially was a IPP that would develop from very early greenfield stages, our own projects. You know, we would have people literally walking over the mountains in Scotland talking to sheep farmers about leasing their land for wind sites. You know, we did everything really from the absolute scratch to obviously, you know, distressed M&A, but it really was a build-own-operate IPP model. But it was always tough to raise capital for Nevera. And and when the GFC, uh, you know, we on that journey, we had done a joint venture with Macquarie Bank, which was a way of trying to access more capital. And we learned a lot from that joint venture with Macquarie. You know, one of our deals, I think, became the first renewables deal in Europe that Macquarie did. But that was a, a learning journey about capital markets and, and infrastructure funds and whatnot. And we got to about 2009 when the GFC was really setting in and, it was already difficult for us to raise capital in a market that was buoyant. And, you know, here we were, Lehman failed, Barclays is getting bailed out, you know, by sovereign wealth funds in the Middle East. The world really looked pretty dire. I mean, you, we, I remember we were talking about the collapse of the entire financial system. And if it wasn't for what they did in the United States in terms of underwriting 
the stability of the US financial system, it was really that that dire. Funnily enough, around that time, Navera became the subject of a contested takeover battle between 3i infrastructure and Terra Firma. And Terra Firma was a European private equity firm, a private equiteer by the name of Guy Hans, who's, you know, quite well known, shall we say, over here in Europe. You know, they sort of battled it out and eventually we sold the business to to Terra Firma and, and we ended up getting a pretty good deal for, you know, long-suffering Navera Energy investors who'd been with us some at that stage for, for a decade. So they ended up being, you know, a good story. But, you know, Rory and I, after, you know, selling the business and we sort of sat around and said, um, what do we do now? The world's still pretty wounded and banks don't have any money, governments don't have any money, Yet these this renewable energy mission that we're on, the world needs this capacity and we have a skill set to build it. How do we keep doing what we've been doing in Navera, but not in a small cap listed company format? Because that's just too difficult. We didn't want to repeat that. And and it was probably two things I'd say, at least two things, maybe more, I'm sure, at the time, but firstly was the fact that we'd been bought out by a private equity shop and we were like, what's this private equity all about? If these guys are buying our business and making it private, you know, maybe we need to do that. And that sounds like a good idea. And the second thing is when we looked around, the private, got to know private equity, I got a chance introduction to David Bonneman from TPG, which was hugely influential in our thinking and what we ultimately decided to do. We just went on this massive research mission and we went and talked to everybody we could. And the thing that that we found, and I guess this does go back to that sort of light bulb moment for an entrepreneur, is we couldn't find really any private equity firms. There really wasn't infrastructure at the time. Well, there was in Australia, but that that were developing, building, owning, and operating renewable energy assets. It was incredibly nascent at that time. And there was no managers doing what we were doing at Novera. So we thought gee, this has got to be an opportunity, right? If banks don't have any money, governments don't have any money, and the penny just dropped, it was self-evident to everyone except us at the time, that pension funds own everything. <laughs> and and ultimately, if we wanted to just disintermediate everybody and go straight to the source of the capital, we would become fund managers. And so we decided that was the secret to us being able to continue our mission and continue to develop, own, operate renewable energy was to become fund managers and go straight to pension funds and institutional investors and convince them of the merits of renewables as a infrastructure investment, which is what it subsequently became classified as. And that's what we did. And so we knew we couldn't do it on our own as a as a sort of a first-time manager with no prior funds experience and so we looked for a partner and and after quite a long journey of talking to most of the established private equity firms that didn't get it at all the asset class or what we were doing you know we ended up forming a partnership with capital dynamics to start their clean energy business in 2010 what set capital dynamics apart you know can you unpack a bit the dynamic of how they viewed the market that aligned with what you wanted, but also compare them with others. I mean, many will recognize in the United States, perhaps capital dynamics as 
uh, as a fund investor here in the States and, and a very successful one. But, um, you know, it's interesting for me how you all came to basically be their expansion opportunity outside of the United States. Well, you know, it's only 2022 and I can tell you in 2010 that we were pretty much, we felt that we, that we had exhausted the idea of finding a partner as a private capital manager. We, we talked to all the big private equity firms and they were like, you know, I just, you know, I needed minimum check size of 200 million. It's got to be a 3X and it's got to have a payback within three years. And, and we're like, it's just not like, that isn't what this is. Like, it's a different thing. It's more like contracted infrastructure. And they're like, yeah, not, not interested in that. And so we'd literally almost given up in trying to find, but, you know, I could tell you the conversation about the strategy of building, owning and operating renewable energy was anathema to most of the private capital managers out there. What was it about it that was anathema? What was it that they, was it just so unfamiliar? Was it some, something about the return, something about the structure? Unfamiliar. There wasn't other precedents. You couldn't compare us to anybody Mm -hmm. else. At that time, you also didn't have an established sort of asset allocation box that sat between core infrastructure and private equity. So you had the Australians and Canadians doing, you know, toll roads, airports, whatnot, let's say high single digit like IRR, but they were largely fully contracted, monopolistic type assets. And then you had private equity buyout. And there was really not a lot in the middle. And we were always in the middle of the fairway. We were mid-teens. That's what we. That's what we'd always done. That's what we. That's what the return opportunity was, and and we were kind of falling right in the cracks. Yeah. And and by mid-teens, you mean levered returns, absolute returns. So when we're all okay. said and done, when we've built, when we've exited, returns to the investors. And so that was always our underwriting criteria. It was it was my underwriting criteria when I was at NRG was always if you couldn't make fifteen percent, you should go do something else. <laughs> Right, and it never changed. It didn't matter. It didn't matter what the interest rates were. It didn't matter what inflation was doing. If you couldn't make fifteen, it was like tattooed on my forehead. If you can't make fifteen percent return, son, you go do something else because then you're no good at this. Okay, so every single thing we've ever tried to do was mid-teens plus, or we're not doing it. Right? That's amazing. <laughs> and we did, and we have. And to be honest, that is the one thing that's just carried us all the way. It's like we don't have a discussion about what the return targets are going to be for the next Quinbrook fund, yeah. right? We know what it's going to be. We just have to figure out how to do it. So anyway, we'd almost given up and then it was a real serendipity moment. I had a, you know, we're even thinking about going back to Australia and I had a conversation with a good friend of mine who was a lawyer who was doing the lease on the London office for Capital Dynamics, who'd had a conversation with their CFO, who was a Kiwi, who said, do you know anyone who's in clean energy? <laughs> and he said, two mates of mine are actually trying to put together a fun thing right now. Why don't I introduce you to them? And, and seriously, that's how it, how it started. So Capital Dynamics had been looking for a team to do a clean energy direct strategy, and which was quite visionary of them at the time, I can tell you. And they had been frustrated. They couldn't find a team. We couldn't find a, an established fund partner, and here we were, you know, found each other in the in the in the wilderness. So Roy and I partnered with them, 
we we termed the business, we tried to create our own term of art and we called it clean energy infrastructure. And, and when we were going around to all the asset consultants, we said, this is the 15% box. This is the box you've been looking for that falls in the middle of classic core infrastructure and private equity. When we're building renewables, clean energy infrastructure, it's 15%. Get your head around that. <laughs> and, and that was not an easy thing to do. But that's what we tried to do is to create our own nonclimature and create our own kind of where do we live in the asset allocation parlance. And we had some success in that. If you've ever asked yourself, how do I know whether I need driven piles or ground screws when contemplating the foundations for your utility scale solar site? Boy, have I got a resource for you. On September 6th, we have Mike Ferrone's Tactical Tuesday on why ground screws matter. Who's Mike? He's the director of engineering from TerraSmart, and he's also known colloquially as Dr. Dirt. This guy knows a thing or three about foundations, and he's going to answer all your questions. You should go queue up the Tactical Tuesday for September 6th. Why Ground Screws Matter with Mike Ferrone. Hey, sunshine. Cloud's got you down. It doesn't have to be that way. Leading solar enterprises around the world are making the most of their investments in sunshine with Solar Anywhere, the data and intelligence service from Clean Power Research. Whether you're designing or operating solar assets, Solar Anywhere helps you reduce project risk and improve performance benchmarking. Learn more at mysuncast.com forward slash solar anywhere. Have you been curious about utility scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. It's built in DC to DC coupling combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative Solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. I'd like for you to help me understand because there are probably a lot of folks who are listening to this thinking, wait, uh, I don't understand. Most of the companies in the US are solving for, you know, six to 8% return on a project. Help me, like, what's the, hmm. what's the delta for those, not the non-financial folks here who are really trying to wrap their head around how you can talk about 15% real returns and most people are solving for six to 8% returns uh, at a project level for the non-professional here. Who's just trying to understand and follow your conversation. Yeah. Well, I could say this to, to things. Cause I get that question every time we start a new fund, everyone says, there's no way you can do that. Right. <laughs> and we ended up, we end up keep doing it. So I think the first thing is that, that look, a lot of the capital flows in our industry are M and A, right? So they are, buying existing assets that have already been de-risked. And for, for many years, and still the case, the biggest challenge in convincing institutional investors to, to take on asset creation as an investment strategy was getting them to understand development risk and the risk return trade-off. And most of them were very, very against the idea of, of development risk. And there was so many misconceptions out there about development risk and that that was too risky and 
they really wanted to buy the de-risked asset. So, you know, give me the wind farm that's already operating. Give me the solar project that's already operating. Well, of course, we know that you typically access those assets through competitive auctions or, or you know, competitive solicitations. And so, not surprisingly, the sort of returns that you're seeing in that space are sort of mid-single digit, right, when it's all competed away. But the original asset developers are the ones that typically did very well out of it. Right? So they're the ones that are sort of making double-digit 15% plus returns. And so our DNA is developers. That's what we are. We're, we're developers with a funds management license. And, and so the key to our success has always been investing earlier through that asset creation cycle. And from an ESG perspective, to close the loop on that, we create assets from scratch. We create jobs from scratch. We build brand new assets. We create benefits for local communities. We reduce emissions because everything we do is additional. It wasn't there before. And so by being able to capture the full life cycle value chain, if you like, everything from the early stage development profit or the sort of de-risking profit that you get from turning something from an idea into an actual project to then de-risking it through construction and then into the de-risked operations phase. We've entered an era now where, where we can now persuade because we've got enough case studies under our belt that we can persuade institutional investors that if you want to make better return, right, and you want to have impact and you want to be additional, you need to embrace asset creation as a strategy Right? And it's no longer ESG doesn't create a return penalty. In fact, ESG impact through asset creation is the only way you can get better returns with the attribution of that impact for the utilisation of your capital. So it's come 180 degrees and the smart institutions are getting it. They understand that and they actually now want value add. They don't want to buy the existing wind farm or solar project because that's now become the riskier asset. So, you know, we've come full circle in in this period of time, only a decade or so. David, I want to underscore what you just said. And if somebody is doing anything else right now uh, that's distracting you on a run, walking your dog, uh, washing your dishes, just like hit rewind for five minutes and re-listen to what David just said, because I think fundamentally, especially if you're in either investment or project development, David just outlined the thesis for why Quinbrook is leading and why Quinbrook is getting mid-teens returns and everyone else is getting single-digit returns. And it goes back to why they have the ESG accolades that they have, uh, how they can return more than just scope one on their reports. Uh, and it is, as he said, if you want to make an impact, be you have to be additional. You have to create assets. Man, that's really powerful, David. So it's really clear to me what you're doing differently. I'd like to explore a bit how Capdyne and, you know, you guys deployed over a billion dollars with Capdyne, how that formation ended up creating the opportunity for you and Rory to ultimately start what would become Quinbrook. It allowed you to bring back the name of, uh, of, of a company that you'd always wanted to use. We'll talk about yeah. your work in the United <laughs> States and, and our friend Adam Larner and all the team here, but unpack a bit for me how the latter half of the last decade unfolded for you once you mm. did get this sort of masterclass opportunity with Capdyne on how to manage that private equity uh, focused on asset creation. Yeah, well, look, I think that the mission there was really start a business, 
that didn't exist and give Capital Dynamics uh, an entree into direct investing and so they could diversify their fund of funds business. And so we did that and, and we went out and we raised, you know, multiple funds over a five-year period and a lot of them were quite pioneering. I mean, you know, anecdotally in 2012, the solar energy fund that we created, it was one of the first institutional funds investing in solar in the United States. And I can tell you, trying to convince a US pension fund to invest in solar energy in 2010, 2011 was a bloody difficult thing to do. Even though it sounds like it should be really straightforward and a lot of them are doing it by the truckload now. But back then, it was really, really a hard sell. But that fund was the largest renewables infrastructure fund raised in the world in 2012, and it only raised $282 million. Now, you fast forward 10 years later, 2022, $282 million hardly gets a headline, right? hardly gets a mention anywhere. So it's also a barometer of the scale at which we have grown in a decade, and now how, in particular, what were very innovative strategies in creating new solar assets in 2010, 2012, is now mainstream, right? But we were genuinely pioneering it at that time. So we had done that and then we'd done some more landfill gas in the UK and we'd done some wind and we'd done some distressed biomass, you know, in Australia. So we would we deployed about a billion dollars and we'd, we'd spent five years building the franchise and I think by... 2015, the the clean energy infrastructure business at Capital Dynamics was pretty well known in the market. And so Rory and I felt as though we'd done what we'd said we would do and what we were brought on to do in partnership with CD, but it was time for us to do our own thing. And so, you know, we, we structured our departure arrangements there with taking over the Australian team and, and one of the funds that we did in Australia called Cape Byron. And that become the genesis of of Quinbrook. So we're celebrating. I think we we're celebrating in a couple of weeks our seventh anniversary. We started in in mid two thousand and fifteen. We had one fund. We had six people, and we built from there. What were some of the innovations that you pioneered with Capdine that you feel not only are the underpinnings of Quinbrook and the and the the model that you embody now, but that even other people are copying, you know, what is it? Imitation is the highest form of flattery. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, I think, I think the one thing that struck me at the time, right. Coming from the IPP industry, when we were running around the U S market, trying to put together these projects and everyone was doing EPC wraps. And you might remember we had the, the cash out ITC back then. So you had this, really short window of time where you could do your tax equity basically as a direct pay, which is being talked about again. And so we had a really short investment period because it's reflecting that three-year window where we could go out and deploy. So we decided we did two things. Uh, We did more than two, but two that are noteworthy, I think. One was we decided to invest 100% in cash. So don't go talk to any banks. Just do all that later because we needed to run like hell. And we need to get this money deployed and we need to get these projects designed, constructed and built. The second thing that we did was we were going to these EPC contractors and they said, well, we'll give you a performance guarantee. And I, and I thought it was really peculiar. I said, how much is that costing? And we worked out that it was costing us about 20% premium on top 
of the, the design and construct elements for a performance guarantee that an EPC contractor had nothing to do with. So that was sort of lunacy. So we said, well, given that we don't have banks insisting on us doing a wrap, let's not do that, right? So we set up our own procurement team and we bought all of these solar modules from the Chinese manufacturers. We set up warehouses in Long Beach and in New Jersey. We had container ships coming and we had a logistics operation that we were managing, but we did all the design and construct ourselves. And then we we set up our own internal sort of asset optimization team that Bob McClenahan did in Scottsdale, Arizona. And so we set up our own internal monitoring, asset monitoring group that would monitor the assets in real time. And then, you know, we did, as I said, we did it all in cash plus the ITC. And we ended up um, having about 70 assets spread between five states. And uh, it was really interestingly in its diversification because on the West Coast, you'd have twice the output in terms of your production and you'd have no reliance on renewable energy credits because those projects were done under the Crest program with SCE and others. And so there wasn't really a subsidy element. It was a time of day tariff that made all the sense in the world because it was peak power. And then on the East Coast, you had half of the production, half of the electricity revenue, and you're more dependent on the solar renewable energy credits. And so it was a really, really interesting diversification the, the lessons we took from that through to today, we still do all cash investing predominantly in Quinbrook's funds. And that allows us to be incredibly nimble. It allows us to survive challenges like we did with the Texas freeze with our wind portfolio. We were able to navigate that because we had no debt and, and we could be the master of our own destiny. And so we've learned to be very conservative with leverage We've learned to do it later, to not let banks dictate how we should develop and how we should structure deals. If we've done our job and de-risked portfolios, we will get a better financing deal at the end when it's done, when the show's over. And that's the way we've sort of approached it. And what might look like relatively lazy capital deployment, we make up for that at the end with with the the debt financing we do. And the, the, the recent Gemini financing with the biggest financing of all time in US renewables that we did only a few weeks ago is an example of that, right? So we did that after, you know, the show was over on the de-risking of the, of the project. But the, the other thing we do still to this day, even more sophisticated than we were doing then, is we do design and construct. We don't do EPC wraps on anything. We buy our own modules. We buy our own batteries. We have our own in-house design team. We have our own construction management teams working within Quinbrook to add this value to squeeze, we call it squeezing the lemon and giving the lemon juice to the investors. Yeah. I love it. (laughs) You mentioned the Gemini deal. Why don't we talk about that? You know, my, um, my friend and, and now yours, a uh, longtime solar warrior here in the United States, Adam Larner, called me. Uh, I've, it's worth noting that I will have Adam on the show. He and I have actually recorded yes, an episode correct. that he literally was like, I don't like it. And this was like right when he started at <laughs> Quinbrook. And he said, this isn't the story I want to tell. Call me back in two years. I'm not exaggerating. And Adam, Adam will laugh when he hears this. But he, he said, I mean, I recorded a whole episode. And, and this is how good friends I am with Adam. I was like, all right, mate, like when you're ready, let me know. Because we just spent two hours on the phone. But um. You started uh, a company in the U.S. that now is known as Primergy, did this Gemini deal. Where did the name Primergy 
first of all, come from? Tell me the story of that. Yeah, I've, I carried that with me for a long time. So when when we're with NRG, the Northern States Power, which is the parent company of NRG at the time, was going to do a merger. It was a very big public merger at the time with a neighbouring utility and it was going to be called Primergy. And I just I absolutely fell in love with the name. I thought the name was awesome. The merger never went ahead and so that name kind of got lost to history except that it was the trademark of a computer server, a Fujitsu computer server called Primergy. So at the time we were doing Novera, Novera was going to be called Primergy and we couldn't do it because we couldn't get this trademark thing you know, out of the way. And so we said, all right, well, came up with Nevera. So when we were thinking about, okay, we've got this Gemini project, this is solar battery storage is really interesting. We're, we're in a leadership position here. We're going to build a business around solar and battery storage. What are we going to call it? And within an instant, it was like, we're going to call Primacy. it Primacy. So it's going to pull that one out of the filing cabinet and eventually I'm going to have my day with that name. I love it. I love it. Uh, every entrepreneur has, you know, if you're like me, not only do you have, you know, 10 business names that you are going to use someday, but you probably have a hundred or more URLs that you've scooped up just in case, just in case. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, even Quinbrook, even Quinbrook, you know, yeah. people sort of surprised that I went last in the branding of Quinbrook. Wow. <laughs> and I, because Brooke Quinn doesn't sound that good, but my, most importantly, it was actually my assistant that said, why don't you call it Quinbrook? And I said, yeah, that's pretty catchy. Why don't you see if there's a .com available for Quinbrook? And if there is, then that's it's a done deal. And sure enough, she Googled and it was available like for like 10 bucks. So we bought the address and then that was it. Quinbrook was born. I was like, if it's a dot com, it's Quinbrook. It's meant to be. That's what it's going to be. <laughs> so I know that it's all obvious in hindsight how things came mm. together. We can tell Indeed. and weave a beautiful story of how the Gemini deal was is just this mint of a deal. It's the biggest deal of, of its kind in history. But it all sort of started again out of the grassroots effort, the blocking and tackling of what you've been doing for 20 years of looking for opportunities in the market where you can add value. Talk, can you talk about the Envy Energy deal? And also more specifically, when you realized that uh, it wasn't just a solar deal and how that sort of changed the, the thesis mm. for Primergy. Yeah, look, I think it goes to the good fortune of of having development in our DNA. I mean, there were you know, two guys that have been dabbling in solar in California. They set up their own little business called Arivia Power, came to us with an idea of this sort of abandoned project near Las Vegas that was in the bankruptcy estate of BrightSource Energy. And it was the last thing left to be sold and then they could wrap up the bankruptcy estate. So so we had a chat with them and, and Rory and I had a, had a look at the fundamentals of of where this thing was, but it was originally going to be a solar thermal tower 25 miles from Vegas and and had been grandfathered with the BLM because they started developing it in 2008. Anyway, so, so the traction of it was they'd done a, some preliminary studies, you know, it was on a lot of land where the BLM was grandfathered, but we didn't think solar tower was the right idea. So anyway, we had the opportunity to move quickly and buy it and I think it took Rory and I 24 hours to decide to buy the project rights for just over a million dollars back in the mid-2017. When you think about the fundamentals, and I go, this goes to your judgment call, that 
experience teaches you this. It was 25 miles from Vegas on 44,000 acres of BLM land, pretty like dead flat. It was across the road from a from a first solar project that they'd done for Apple. The Crystal substation had 1,000 megawatts of interconnect capacity without any augmentation costs and it was across the road. I mean, it was almost too good to be true. And and so we thought, well, you know, a million dollars for this opportunity is really not a big leap of faith. So, yes, we had a whole range of things to be done on permitting and, you know, whatnot. But that's where the idea of, you know, of Gemini was born is could we convert it to a solar PV project and could we get it permitted and could we – find an offtake. And of course, all those things have now been, you know, proven in the positive. But once we'd done the PPA with NV Energy and we went on a massively steep learning curve about solar and storage and DC coupled solar and storage and and you know how we oversize the solar and charge the battery and and it it's an, a unique solution for for Las Vegas. It's a four-hour battery, and it and it uses solar power during the day. It does a one-time deep discharge, you know, in the late afternoon. It's actually a really, really neat project. But it it taught us a, a whole bunch of things about what was likely to dominate the energy transition going forward in technology combination. And solar and storage just really captured our imagination, and and it and it has developed a very, very deep conviction in us that this was something where we needed to be expert. We needed to take the learnings of Gemini and then turn it into a business. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to build a company around Gemini, right? And we're going to do a lot more of this. And so we're going to build a business that we're going to call it Primogy. (laughs) That's non-negotiable, right? And then we need to go and find the C-suite, right? And put the C-suite together and let them take it from there under Quinbrook's tutelage and supervision. And that, and Adam Lana, who's an absolute gem of a man for those that, that don't know him, was employee number one. And it was Bob McClanahan again and I that interviewed Adam in San Francisco, right, in a hotel bar when we met and we laid out the vision for Primogy and Gemini and everything and and I think Adam, I think he pretty much decided on the spot. On the spot. You know, that, that I can was tell you he decided on the spot. So, yeah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, you know, you know, we, so we had, we had our sort of technical construction, you know, brain. And uh, then, you know, we, we engaged Ty as CEO, Carl Orsoni, who's one of our operating partners, was instrumental in, in recommending Ty. I had known Ty for a long time. Anyway, and so that was a no-brainer to put him in as CEO. Um, Tim Larrison, also associate of of Carl's from Green Charge Networks. So it it came together fairly quickly, but it was like to for us, it was like here's the dream team in terms of the C-suite. Everyone saw the vision that we had. Everyone saw the opportunity of leveraging Gemini, creating a big business with high impact in solar and storage and that we were going to do the lay the foundation for the business with the senior leadership team and then we were going to support them to go and build it up and i think you know you see the results of that now with with just how quickly primergy has grown and I, even i was surprised not long ago it was only a few months ago and i got one of those 
LinkedIn messages, congratulate Ty Doll for one year <laughs> at Primergy. And I was like, holy <laughs> shit. Like what? Has it been only it's 12 only months? only been a year? My yeah. goodness. I know. We I know. have done so much. It's incredible, actually. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for those who are unfamiliar with Ty Doll, I, I need to get on. I mean, Ty and I have known each other for ages since his recurrent days and um, mm. his time at Canadian Solar before that. Just a really, really good operator, really understands how to build a team around a business thesis. Uh, Such a, such a genuine human being too. It's unfair. I know like the, the, um, there are a handful of companies like this, right? Next tracker is one where I know Mm. that I'm in trouble when I start looking at the, um, at the leadership C-suite and I go, oh shoot, I I can't, I I have to interview every single person. How do I do this without it seeming completely biased? That I'm um, now like all of a sudden on the on the payroll of uh, of Next Tracker or Quinbrook because I want to <laughs> you know like Tim Larison and Ty Dahl and Adam Larner and David Skaysbrook and I want to interview all of you right I want to get Rory on for me it's a hallmark where I can look at the the leadership and think to myself Jesus absent them being involved in this company I would have wanted to interview each and every one of them because they have been pioneers for other companies that people recognize like Ty right like Adam. Indeed. Uh, Adam was one of the early pioneers in fund management for PPAs, right? Running yes. a boutique yes. shop. So a lot of people look at him as a, as a operator, a contractor, uh, a, a procurement guy, right? Like a guy who understands the engineering side of it, but he's done everything. He actually has done all, all aspects of the business. So, and he's a Golden State Warriors fan, which that's is right. very important because it's my son. And I bought him, I bought Adam a T-shirt in the NBA store in New York this week. So he's, that's on, it's on your way. It's on its way to you, Adam, you <laughs> in case Perfect. you're listening. <laughs> you know, I want to, um, you alluded to the future of the energy transition in terms of scalability is uh, solar plus storage. But the original idea for you guys wasn't solar plus storage. Who insisted that storage be added to this uh, Nevada project? Yeah, well, you know, we really started out like everybody else, just thinking that it was a very large-scale solar project, like all other large-scale solar projects. It was really, it was Envy Energy that was taking the initiative through their RFP. Yeah, it was Envy Energy. And and they were like, you know what, we want to add storage to the RFP. And everyone was like, gee, we need to go and figure it out, storage, like pretty quickly. And, you know, we had started, you know, we had started down the storage thesis Way earlier, like I'm mean, probably 2015, when we first started Quinbrook, storage was one of the things that were going to be a strategic priority for us. But we we hadn't done all the work that was necessary to understand it to the extent you needed to to invest in it. And the great thing in hindsight about the Gemini RFP process with Envy Energy, it forced us to come up the learning curve really, really quickly. And and the talent pool. If you think the talent pool is scarce today, in 2022, in 2019, when we were looking for people to help us, I can tell you there was hardly anybody around who understand anything about batteries. It was a bit of a blind leading the blind, but, you know, we, we got through it and, you know, we managed to get some smarts assembled around us that was adequate to, to and we're, we're all learning, you know, the energy team was learning, we were learning, but we learned quick. You've pointed to learning quick. And I know that you're an insatiable learner. One of the things that I try to tease out here is the the nuts and bolts. Like, what are the heuristics? And I'd like to know, how did you get up this storage learning curve so quickly? Besides hiring really smart people who helped to sort of aggregate data for you, but you as a, as a, as a professional who needs to be able to defend the thesis to mm. your investors, to the pension funds who believe mm. in, in what you're doing. 
Well, you know, it's a good, it's a really, really good question because it's not often when you're in, let's say, conventional power infrastructure that you have to learn something that's entirely new from a technology perspective in this sort of time frame because, you know, solar modules have been around for a long time. Next year's model is going to be more efficient. The cell is going to be a bit bigger, et cetera, or, you know, turbine sizing, gearbox mechanisms. They're not huge leaps to their more incremental sort of improvements. But, but here was something that was really quite novel that was essentially chemistry and electrochemistry. And that that's definitely not my expertise. So what I had to set about doing was what were the things I needed to know, right? I, can, I can't ever do, I, as much as I want to do a crash course in battery storage, there are, there are certain things that I need to know to be able to assess it as an investable opportunity. And then I need to assemble around me the people that are expert in each of the component ingredients of the battery. So the connection between how the bat- the electrical smarts around how the battery and the solar gets combined. And then commercially, I have to understand what does that mean in terms of risk of operations and how it gets, how does that get reflected in the PPA structuring and, and where does the liability rest and how do we manage that and allocate that? What can go wrong? And if things go wrong, where are the failure points? How long does it go wrong for? How long does it take us to fix it? Where are the interdependencies from an operational point of view? The things that were bugging us in 2019, the state of batteries as they were at that time, were two things. One was, you know, people were worried about thermal runaway and inherent fire risk. Now, even though these assets were you know, away from populated areas in the, high, in the high desert. Nevertheless, it was an operational hazard. You know, it was, uh, it was an issue that were worrying people because you had the fire in Arizona, which was one of the first big, you know, lithium battery fires and people were freaking out and they didn't really understand why. But that battery chemistry issue was bugging us and how would we design around that? How would we create the fire control? Who would put out the fires? If it started, how would that be managed? Then the second element to it became the cooling system and the temperatures that you can reach in Nevada and the derating of the output from the battery when they get really hot. And the cooling systems back then were still the HVAC cooling systems. And we we just really struggled with the idea that we would have these hundreds of fans running on a, on a 105-degree day and having this heavily derating. And so these, so the things that I was pushing on were the things and pushing the engineers and, 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 and pushing the OEM manufacturers is tell me what else is coming. Cause just assume that that's, we're not, this is configuration that you have here mm-hmm. isn't sitting that well with us right. as a 25 year proposition. What have you got else that's sort of coming? And, and fortuitously, Two things were coming. One, liquid cooling, and two, LFP. And so we thought, you know, this is our moment. We need to, this is what, this is the evolution that we want to embrace. So if you look at my role at Quinbrook was to push the teams to embrace those two things that were coming closer and closer to us and saying, 
No, we're going down this direction. This is a better investable product long-term for our investors. Yes, it might be new, but the fundamentals are more sound than what we currently have. And so we need to go in this direction. And so then we drive the engineers and we drive the health and safety and we drive the fire protection and we drive it everything towards that direction. So then it's a question of assembling all the experts and do the diligence and come up with the answers and the solutions. Thank you. It's brilliant to be able to look inside, genuinely like look into the thought process that goes into something that we will look back on. As you talked about before, your first deal, that was 282 million, uh, the largest fund of its kind at the time. You know, similarly, we just remarked on how Gemini's largest deal is it, I mean, qualify the statement, largest deal, largest deal ever, largest deal of what kind? Can you just put it in a box for me if it's possible? Yeah. Well, I think it's the, the largest solar and storage deal that's it's ever been financed. Mm-hmm. And currently it's the largest one under construction. We put up, <laughs> uh, we're trying to get some metrics for our investors at our AGM a couple of weeks ago in London together so that they can understand the sheer scale of of Gemini. Because you might say, you know, 1.8 million modules, that sounds like a lot, but what does that really mean when you lay it out? So we, we came up with two metrics. One is it's half the size of Manhattan Island. Oh, wow. <laughs> and the other one is it's 5,500 NFL football fields. Wow. So that, and then so when you put it into that sort of context, then it's a wow. And you go, okay, yeah, this this really truly is. Um, that's the entire complex. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's that's six hundred ninety megawatts with plus the battery storage and the battery storage itself. That component is how big? Both in uh, total total storage plus like the occupies the, the space that it occupies. Yeah, well, I think it's 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 on probably you know I'd say it's about. F- 300 acres for the, for the storage. Yeah. We've got <laughs> that reserved crap. for it. And it's for about 1400 megawatt hours, just under four hour duration. So the idea is, you know, particularly for NV energy, you know, we will charge it during the day. So we're oversized the solar to make sure the battery can be fully charged so that when the sun goes down, particularly in the summer peak, when the sun goes down, we do, we do a single deep discharge into the evening you know, when you think about it, and, and this is where our thought process goes well beyond Gemini and Nevada, is that period of the day, as we decarbonize and we take on more renewables, when the sun goes down is when power is going to be the most expensive everywhere in the world. Because wind tends to not kick in until later in the evening. And that period of time when we're all coming home from work and everyone's switching on their TVs and they're doing their cooking, That is the early evening peak, as we all know. It's one of the peakier moments of the day. And we don't have a lot of answers for that right now in carbon-free energy solutions. And that that period, this is where solar became, solar plus storage became so potent for us because we want to harness excess solar during the day and batteries make it storable for the first time in human history and then we can save it up and we can discharge it in that early evening peak when when it's needed the most and that would be carbon free power except for the round trip loss that makes eminent sense that makes the most sense when we think about what other alternative do we have gas fired power coal you know it's right now that is our best answer 
we will get longer duration storage solutions. But right now, four hours is about it, right? The economic feasibility, we're starting to like tap out at four hours. For an application like Gemini, where the alternative might be gas or it might be scarce pumped hydro or, you know, it ain't wind in in that part of the of Nevada, that's a really sensible, efficient, robust answer today. David, I want to ask this question, although I feel that anyone who's listened this far through might have their own presupposition as to the answer. But what do you think others, maybe Bob uh, or Rory even, would say is your unflappable strength? It's probably the singularity that I can develop around the direction to go in, mm-hmm. right? And and that stems from, you know, I guess my personal confidence that once I've got conviction about something and I tend to develop it intuitively, I don't do a asset a liability statement of pros and cons of things. That's not how I approach it. I have, I've learned over the years that I have got strong instincts about directionally which is the right way to go and I've learned to trust that. And then when I develop strong conviction around it, then I can communicate that very effectively to other people as to this is where we're going and why. And I'd say I'm able to galvanize people around those ideas and sort of lead them in that direction. And I probably, at least I'd hope that that they would say, you know, David is is a good strategic leader because he can make very, you know, clear decisions at least in his own head and then communicate them. And over time they, you know, if I was going back and doing a bit of a stock take, I mean, don't get me wrong, I've had some absolute shockers um, over the years. But, you know, in the in the swings and roundabouts, I'd say generally speaking our strategic directional decisions over the last 30 years have been good ones. On that note, actually, I think it's important from a lessons learned perspective also, I try to tell people don't leave out the, the hard stuff. Uh, you mentioned four times where the company, uh, Novera in particular, was um, at the, the brink of insolvency or two times you were four weeks from insolvency, mm. if I recall correctly. Yeah. What, in a sense, were some of those, uh, maybe in a, in a nutshell, encapsulate for me some of the early sort of non-academic MBA experiences that came from the, from the failures that didn't work out mm. or the near failures? The near failures. Yeah, look, I, I think that, you know, part of it is you can't, you can't entertain the prospect of failure in your own head. Like you genuinely cannot, I mean, and it's difficult when others around you, you can see them visibly and physically <laughs> freaking out and becoming very anxious and and they're worried about not only the company hitting the wall but their, their own careers and their own jobs, their own families, and you feel that. You palpably can feel it and you can't let that affect your own state of mind or your own emotional state because it's your job, right? If, if you're using a military analogy, right, if you buckle, it all goes to hell, right? And so you cannot entertain the prospect of failure. You have to use every waking moment to cultivate answers and find solutions. That's your job in that moment of crisis, not to be distracted. And I think I've been able to do that. I don't know how I've been able to do that, but I have been able to do that and find ways out of the mire on more than one occasion. And I think that certainly makes you stronger and more resilient, but what it does, it builds confidence in other people about your leadership and decision-making. And that means you can do your job even more effectively the next time around because they'll be like, David's got this, right? 
or we can go down this path. And that's, I think that's been quite important. Are there any key mentors in your life or career as you reflect on your journey who made a really indelible impact? Or many, I'd say many. I'd say, you know, David Bonderman, the time that I spent with him, and it wasn't, you know, very long, but it was two occasions where, you know, I soaked up every word that was coming out of his mouth about how to start a private equity fund. And I think, you know, I look back and I think I could have gone off on any one of a number of wrong tangents had I not had that, you know, guidance from him on just on a couple of key areas around track record attribution and and things like that that I didn't even know was important and 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 they set us up so incredibly well and were incredibly important to the early successes that we had which had we not had those lessons you know it would have been far more difficult you know for us you know I would say the you know Walter that I mentioned before giving me the the little tidbits of how do you create value? How do you get investors to recognize that value and so that your shares in the business are worth something and that and that they can be confident enough to invest at an enterprise value, which means that yes, your your founder's equity is worth something because the enterprise is worth something. And how do you make that tangible? And and I I as I said before, I was clueless about that until until I listened to what he had to tell me and how to go about it. So I would say, you know, those two things. And then I've got a dear friend, Don Farrens, who, who uh, has been a, a coach colleague. Um, he's one of the brightest individuals I've ever met. He's a Queen's counsel at the bar in Victoria as a, as a lawyer. And if I've ever got an issue or a problem, Don's always the first person that I call. And, and he's always been, there for me in terms of, you know, me testing my own judgment or when I'm in a pickle, quite frankly, which has been more than one occasion, (laughs) I've always gone to him when I've been, you know, in a bit of a bind and needed to find a way out. I appreciate that. Thank you. I find that all too often, there's a couple of things I recognize in successful founders that I hope to tease out and and share with others because they're non-obvious. The one is almost to a person everyone has at least that one person that's their like their true north and that mm. is a, a durable relationship of of decades not just weeks or months or years that is that person like you said to a to a fault he's the person or to a, to a point he's the person who tests my judgment right mm. i think that's critical and the other is even outside of that having a paid engagement of a business coach you know someone who can uh, help you be a, as a strategic advisor who is not on you know, not on payroll other than the fact that, I mean, they're not, they don't, they're not an equity partner. They're not an advisor to the company. They, they have nothing in it, but to see you thrive and succeed. I can imagine all the ways that I wish we had time to even dig into kind of how you structured your, your professional guidance through all of this, because it's as much as there's the uh, David Bonderman who did the unbelievable, you know, so just sort of the serendipitous moment Venn diagram where you get a chance to sit before someone who literally maps out the roadmap for you and tells you what the, where the pit, pitfalls are and, and the and the potholes in the road. There's a head game, like you said, Jesus, like you have to, my takeaway from don't entertain the prospect of failure is that mindset is everything. Yes, it is. What do you believe is the, the next big problem? And by problem, I mean bottleneck or choke point that's really holding back the energy transition. I think it's it's technology solution. 
it's not it's not money. It's definitely not capital. We've come so far in the maturing of various asset classes around climate mitigating infrastructure that, that I'm confident around the availability of the capital going forward. I'm confident about policy and regulation. You know, people default to saying we need more rules and more policy. I'm I don't not a big subscriber to that idea. I think it's it's a fundamental business opportunity that exists and will be profitable in and of its own right. When I think about the tipping point of industrial decarbonisation, the things that we've got to get over, these are by and large technology solutions. And and as I said in the at the AGM with my investors the other week, we've never ever had to be so open and investigative to the rapid evolution in industrial technology by being in the power business. You know, we'd never had to really look that far down the road of what was going to change industrial manufacturing, what was going to change the way power markets operate, price formation in power, what was power going to be worth when it's all carbon free. When we look at the sectors of the economy that need to decarbonise, the constraints to going from where we are today to where we need to be to hit the net zero targets are mostly technological. So if we think about long duration storage, it's a technology challenge. I guess it's a cost challenge because they're going to have those technologies have to be not only effective, but they have to be affordable and they have to be price competitive. If we look at how you make steel without fossil fuel, it's a technology challenge. How do you make aluminium or how do you make aviation fuel or transport fuel that is carbon neutral? These are all moonshot exercises that are going on around the world today to solve what is essentially technology challenges. The great hope is as a species, we're quite good at solving technology challenges. And and so therefore the hope that underpins the energy transition in terms of achieving net zero goals is our capacity for innovation in new technology solutions, right? And, and, and I think that is a more pertinent, you know, realisation, certainly it is for us, than saying, oh, we just need a whole bunch of additional wind and solar. Like it's way more than that. It's what you do with that and how you can make that have a great a much higher utility to industry in particular that is energy intensive, whether that be data centres, whether it be steelmaking, whether it be cement manufacturing, each one of these sectors, in order to hit their decarbonisation goals, all have one thing in common, which is why I love being – if I wasn't in this business, I'd be in self-storage, but that that's a whole nother conversation. Self-storage? But Oh, right, the self-storage business, right. Self-storage. But every single one of these industries need abundant, cheap, renewable power. Mm -hmm. And that is the the thing that we are spending more and more time on in being involved in the Long Duration Energy Storage Council is, and things like initiatives like that, is getting an eye down the road on these technologies and where they are in their cycles of evolution and, and commercialization that are going to solve these industrial scale challenges. And so that's how I would answer that question, Nico. David, thank you. I don't think that I could have imagined a better way to end 
our wide ranging conversation. And, and uh, I've thought throughout this conversation about a half a dozen at least portfolio companies I'm invested in that I'm sending this <laughs> this recording to ahead of time. Um, and I'm, I'm genuinely grateful. Thank you for taking the time out of an incredibly busy schedule to to lean in, to mentor virtually the thousands of solar warriors that are hanging on every word in this conversation today. And I, uh, I look forward to getting more of your, your A-team, Adam Larner, Ty Dahl, Tim Larison, and the like on the show. Great. Well, it's been great, Nico. Thank you for your questions. And, you know, I, I look forward to listening to, to, to their podcasts. When yeah, you get absolutely. <laughs> wow. I tell you, it doesn't get much better than that. You asked for it and we delivered it here on Suncast. That, my friends, is two hours of mentorship from one of the most prolific and respected fund managers and solar developers in the world. Thank you, David, truly for mentoring and guiding us along this energy transition. I learned so much from this interview that it would be it would just be diminutive to try and encapsulate it here in some sort of uh, of a summary. I would love to know from you, however, Solar Warrior, what did you learn? What's your biggest takeaway from this interview? You can tweet it at me, at Nico Mayo, N-I-C-O-M-E-O, or you can certainly, as you are well aware, find me on LinkedIn. I'm certain that there will be a deep post and probably a video summary of this interview on LinkedIn. So you go look for that and just drop me a comment and a like and share this to your community because I can guarantee you of the 500 episodes we've done, this is in the canon of all-time greats. This deserves more ears than I can possibly reach and it only happens because you guys share it. So thank you so much. I'm indebted to you for investing two hours of your life. I'm indebted to you for investing your attention, and your time. Thank you. If you're eager to keep learning, I have asked David to provide us with some additional links and and insights, his thoughts on the books that I didn't get to ask him about and the daily routines and habits and things that he's created in his life that give him leverage. So I'd encourage you to go over and check out those answers on the show notes page. You can find that along with the resources and highlights from every discussion and the social media links, etc., you can find that over on mysuncast.com. Just click on the episodes tab. Since I know that you are a fan because you're listening all the way through to the end, would you please consider giving us a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts? And to do that super easily, we've made it accessible through a link that you can find on the homepage at mysuncast.com. If you scroll down to the bottom, you'll see a button that says leave us a review that I'll take you to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast. Of course, you can just type that into your browser, ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast. And it's also right there in the description of your podcast player. If it's not, ping me an email, nico at mysuncast.com and let us know because that was an oversight. I'd hope that you'll come back next week for our Tactical Tuesday, which is practical short form advice on how to build your clean energy career. And of course, these long form deep dive executive profiles on Thursdays that are what we've become known for here on Suncast. Thanks again. And finally, but certainly not least of all to our sponsors who help make this content free for you each and every week so that you keep coming back and enjoying 
at no upfront cost except that which you cannot replace <laughs> your time. You can find out more about those partners at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. We've linked to their websites, and that's also where you can find a little more information if you'd like to figure out how to partner with Suncast to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions just like this each and every week. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. Thank you.